0: Nipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fryde, Spears, Gilbert professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Smith, assistant professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Library Crime, which will be published in the Drake Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Michael. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, the p- pleasure's pleasure's all mine. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work. I really enjoyed Talking to you a while back about your article, Shooting Fish, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about library crimes today. I wonder if we could start by you just spending a little bit of time enlightening us about exactly what is a library
1: crime. So, the way I define it in the article is fairly broad. I decided one day, kind of out of the blue, after chatting with one of my uh, friends at Idaho, uh, one of the law librarians there, uh, what if I were to look into every state's criminal law that had something to do with libraries? And from there, I developed an index of state-by-state laws. And in the article, I develop a fairly extensive taxonomy of those criminal laws. So if I were to define a library crime It would be some sort of criminal law that has to do with libraries in some way. Uh, Some of the the big three, I would say, are theft of library materials, uh, damaging library materials, or failing to return library materials. And then there's a host of other sort of related and additional crimes. So with theft, you have sort of a related criminal regime of powers given to librarians to detain Suspected thieves and things like that. I go over those in the article as well. Uh, you have uh, concealment prohibitions, where the act of concealing library materials is itself a criminal offense. Sort of to try to, you know, cut out the middleman and get the theft prosecution started early. You have some nuisance crimes. You know, Massachusetts—it's a crime to spit in the library. Uh, and then you have some sort of adjacent uh, statutes, which I also thought were important to include, uh, particularly fines and uh, fee provisions where criminal fines and fees are directed to libraries. Uh, Michigan in particular has a constitutional provision stating that any criminal fines and fees uh, by the localities and townships, and I think counties as well, uh, need to go to libraries, which creates kind of an interesting dynamic uh, and an interesting position for librarians to be in where uh, they find that, you know. Uh, substantial and sometimes chunk of their funding uh, depends on crimes in general, perhaps even the library crimes themselves, uh, to the extent that there are fines and fees from there. So I'd say my theme is to take a fairly broad approach to library crime and see what patterns develop from there. And that's what I do in the, uh, the descriptive sort of first half of the
0: article. So just how criminal are these library crimes? And is it consistent from state to state did you see wide variations what are states criminalizing why are they criminalizing it and how punitive are they in theory and maybe kind of how punitive are they in practice as well
1: well there's definitely some trends um, uh, a lot of them tend to be misdemeanors I, I uh, there was a reason I listed the three earlier categories those are fairly common crimes I'd say around half of the states uh, have, any one of the you know, library theft, uh, taking mater- uh, failing to return materials or damaging material statutes. A lot of them tend to be misdemeanors as well. So if I were to identify sort of patterns or trends, those are probably the most pronounced trends that I see. But variation, tons of that also. And some of these crimes, you know, a lot of states treat them as misdemeanors, but some of them can involve pretty substantial penalties. Uh, some of the theft statutes, some of the damaging statutes, if especially if you're over a certain threshold of uh, materials that are being stolen or damaged, we're talking potentially years in prison, sometimes a decade in prison for some of these states. Uh, and so I was, I, I'm sure, I make sure to flag some of these outliers, you know, what are you in for? It's my seventh year here in prison. you know i I stole an expensive book. Um, as for your question about how how um punitive are they in practice i I am not entirely sure about this. I I really can't begin to think of how I would specifically track the library crimes, their patterns of enforcement, uh, trends in sentencing, anything like that. It's hard enough to get some of that general data about law enforcement in general. Specifying it for library crimes, uh, I would have my doubts. From some of my experience um, a while back, I was at a DA's office. I, I do find that maybe these crimes might not be prosecuted as much because sometimes people don't even know they're there. Uh, given the choice to prosecute someone for theft versus library theft, you may just have uh, law enforcement DA folks, uh, charging the theft itself. And maybe the library crime, you know, isn't part of the prosecution at all. Uh, but some of these crimes are fairly specific, fairly specific to libraries. Uh, one other aspect that may also decrease the prosecution from some of my conversations with librarians, folks who have worked in public libraries, is that there is a trend um, and there is a, an accepted practice of really trying to deescalate and deal with disruptive patrons in ways that try not to get law enforcement involved in the first place. So, um, you know, trying to deescalate is one talking through people's concerns if they're being disruptive. Uh, Suspension of library privileges is another common uh, avenue of dealing with people who may be disruptive and not a criminal penalty, and so not, uh, in my view, a library crime. And you have a lot of that sort of uh, come into play, I believe, before we may get to library crimes. So in practice, perhaps not so pervasive, but I still think important to the extent that we have... A fair portion of the statute books across quite a few states uh, devoted to library crimes. And I think there's lessons we can learn about our system from uh, these statutes.
0: So, a, a considerable part of the article deals not only with crimes relating to library materials, but also characterized kind of like status crimes mm-hmm. in relation to libraries, like in effect variations on loitering or kind of who qualifies as a bona fide, legitimate, appropriate library patron? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those and sort of what you see as their pedigree, where they came from, what they're intended to accomplish, and how they're enforced in practice.
1: Sure. So I think, um, so I do go into a sort of a category of crimes. I think I uh, have a a category I call it, you know, laws that exclude uh, patrons and employees uh, from libraries um, that involve criminal penalties for their violation. One of the more common ones, not super common, but uh, in at least a few states, is prohibitions on certain sex offenders from using libraries at all in the first place, let alone uh, working at a library. Um, Sex offenders who are frequently have been convicted of a prior crime, often uh, crimes involving uh, sexual abuse of uh, of minors or children, tend to be barred often for you know, as long as they're registered or perhaps for life, from going to places where children are known to frequent. And you have statutes often including a list of types of locations, parks, uh, schools, and frequently libraries as well. So people with that sort of a criminal record, sometimes even more broadly, find themselves at a disadvantage or unable to use the library. A few states do have some regimes for if you do have a qualifying offense, you may be able to apply and obtain some use, perhaps some limited use of the library. Uh, But again, a bunch of hoops to jump through for a place that typically is free for all to enter and free for all to patronize. Uh, There are also some status-related crimes or some adjacent crimes um, that I think fit into this category as well. You have sometimes some trespass laws, which I think uh, could be uh, enforced against certain classes of people, particularly uh, people who are unhoused or have nowhere else to go. And um, if those people are you know, deemed by a strict library to not be there for what the library is ostensibly for, checking out books, using the computers, finding information... I could see potentially those crimes also being converted from kind of a trespass offense into a sort of exclusionary offense for those who, you know, don't fit the the standard description of, you know, a stereotypical library patron. And uh, you also have some other adjacent crimes related. And these are this is sort of maybe getting a little farther afield, but sort of penalty enhancements. So people who commit other crimes that they happen to be in or near libraries, there are several offenses that uh, boost. Uh, the criminal sentence, or perhaps uh, include more restrictive parole or probation conditions if those crimes are committed in or around libraries.
0: So reading the paper, I felt like a lot of the criminal statutes you're referencing felt curiously anachronistic, like they were written for a different era and maybe didn't reflect how people actually use and interact with libraries today. I wonder if that was your experience as well. And what, if anything, you think it says about the concept of library crimes or really libraries as institutions and what their institutional role is or has been in the past? So I, I agree with that take. I agree with that impression.
1: Uh, I think on one sort of basic level, a lot of these crimes focus around kind of tangible materials or property. I read a lot of these crimes and they're about books, uh, stealing a book, damaging a book, writing in a book, um, failing to return a book. And libraries today are about so much more than just books. Uh, They are about finding, you know, not only uh, books and printed materials, but also, you know, Periodicals, newspapers, crucially in many, uh, especially rural communities, the internet—a uh, stable, reliable place to connect to the internet and simply get information there, uh, intangible as it may be—and so a lot of the sort of the crimes that I'm noticing don't really veer into that area. Some, some do, uh, and some, you know, maybe extended to do so, you know, disruptive behavior crimes and things like that. But a lot of them really do seem to be based around the library as an op- as a location where one explores, obtains, and checks out tangible materials. I also think um, on a broader level that these are sort of anach- anachronistic because libraries today have grown to be so much more than just a place where one goes and finds a book, explores and you know gains information and leaves. Uh, libraries are in many places, community centers. Uh, they're places where people go, not just to inform themselves, but to gather, to hold events. Uh, we see that in um, perhaps, maybe most prominently and most controversially with uh, recent drag queen story hours where libraries host these events, which in turn prompt a great deal of media attention, public protest. Uh, They can have benefits to those who attend, but also maybe these uh, side effects of gaining attention that the library may also not want and so uh you have some interesting chilly dynamics there and also just uh for many people libraries are a place to to go and stay without a reason uh people who don't have shelter people who don't have a reliable uh place to go to the bathroom uh people who need warmth uh, uh or cool air i'm talking in san antonio right now a crucial place to be able to go and you know just be uh without An appointment without someone asking you why you're there uh, you can just go and exist there and a lot of these crimes i think are kind of inconsistent with that modern role of the library uh, a place to as as not only a you know a place to educate oneself but as sort of a a haven or a resource center for those who are facing these disadvantages Uh, as i explore briefly in the book but as i've seen in much more detail elsewhere a lot of libraries employ social workers um a lot of or at the very least provide extensive and um you know well thought out well planned sets of resources and connections and links that they give to people who need uh, these resources so libraries do a lot more nowadays than just checking out books or telling people to be quiet
0: <laughs> so i i wonder what you think looking at library crimes as a way of thinking about libraries as social institutions tells us what libraries mean as social institutions and how the meaning or kind of social role of a library has changed over time.
1: Well, I think from a, from the perspective of library crimes, one of the critiques that I make in the article is I think that they are inconsistent with what the institution is. It's not so much what they tell us about the institution of libraries as it is this criminal regime is not consistent with what libraries have become. And to that end, I think that there's a strong case for reforming or revising or in many cases probably eliminating certain library crimes. Um, I, I don't think that a potential... Ten-year prison sentence for stealing a certain number of books is consistent with that ideal, that modern ideal of a library as a place to go if you have nowhere else to be. Um, I, I do think that, um, and so from the library, so library crimes, I think, don't maybe tell us as much as they do about li- as much about libraries as they do about the criminal legal system and how it interacts with so- other social institutions and how people try to live their lives. And perhaps this tendency to deal with a social problem or a perceived problem, we have an uptick in thefts from the library. What are we going to do? Well, let's just pass a criminal law sending people to jail or to prison if they're caught taking something out of the library. Or, you know, let's do one better and let's just criminalize the concealment of the book altogether and have people subject to criminal sanctions if we catch them doing that. That, I think, um, and Library crimes, I think, reveal a pattern of that sort of thinking and legislating, essentially trying to criminalize away social problems or trends that are a lot more complex uh, and and ultimately a means of, you know, attempting to deal with those problems that I think are counterproductive. I do think we see um, a lot of librarians attempting to deal with that by, you know, not invoking library crimes, instead resorting to de-escalation again or to means of you know restricting people's privileges or something like that but the crimes themselves as they express themselves on the book and the image that they set forth is if you go against this anachronistic stereotypical view of what the library is for you are going to be punished and that punishment will you know give you a criminal record it could lead to your incarceration it could lead to fines that you may not be able to pay it can create a whole host of problems that ultimately, I think, are inconsistent with what libraries
0: do now. So it struck me reading the, the article that there's a way in which libraries historically seem to have functioned as places of meaning creation and meaning expression, and that the way that that works seems to have changed over time, and that libraries do meaning in different ways today than perhaps they might have done in the past and so part of the what felt anachronistic about some of the laws that you discussed was that they seem to be kind of structured to the libraries of your written for the libraries of your as opposed to the libraries of of today do you see the laws changing in certain ways to sort of reflect what libraries do now and i i guess my bigger question is sort of what what do you think libraries mean in contemporary america and what kind of legal regime would be appropriate to the meaning that libraries have today
1: i guess i'm i'm not sure uh, i i did some historical looking into you know the roles of libraries through history and um, the place that they play in communities. I guess um, I do think they have played, um, and perhaps I'm backtracking a bit on my earlier answer, but I do think they have played a role as, you know, community centers as well as libraries, you know, um, you know, resources for checking out books and educating oneself. Um, I also think that they've played a consistent role throughout history of a place to sort of a free form self-education uh the idea of and and you see this sort of in public school libraries in particular where you have the curriculum of the classroom but then you have the openness of the public school library where you can veer out of the curriculum finding related materials materials that contradict uh things that you're learning in your lessons i'm teaching at, you know teaching in a law school it's great to read uh articles, see the footnotes, see the sources. Uh, I can find things from there, but I also like to just go onto the shelves, find a book, and then search to see what's around it and, you know, engage in an inquiry that way. I think that's been a pretty common, uh, unique uh, goal of libraries, as well as the function as a community center. In terms of change and modernization, I do think the internet is a more recent phenomenon. I do think that libraries serve similar functions, but in an even more pronounced way now, uh, you know, providing information about the community and about the, the country in a far more um, accessible and, um, uh, ex- I guess, exaggerated or, um, or amplified way uh, by not just providing written resources, but electronic resources. As far as change that I see sort of from libraries evolving roles, or at least the, there are the evolving intensity of some of their functions, perhaps. I do think that um, there is a case for reforming some of these anachronistic laws. I think that perhaps, um, it, it, and all, I think that perhaps maybe some of these, again, property-focused uh, rules uh, may not have as much of a place with the functions of libraries that we see today, perhaps even the disruptions of libraries that we see today. Uh, Recent library scholarship, disruptive patron uh, scholarship, for instance, often focuses on, you know, kind of the the person who's misusing the Internet, perhaps looking at materials that that, you know, maybe not appropriate to view in public in the library. A lot of these rules don't really a lot of these crimes don't really seem to deal with those laws. I don't think the solution is to pass a host of new laws, criminalizing, uh, looking up obscene materials on the Internet and libraries. Uh, But I do think that it does uh, illustrate perhaps that disconnect change that I think would be appropriate. I think that change might um, add force uh, to to other arguments to maybe downplay these crimes to reduce the sentences or eliminate them. Uh, I do think that um, alternatives uh, through the form of, you know, increased funding to libraries, providing more resources, as well as dealing with this through, you know, civil fines or penalties, or perhaps through library privilege removal, are likely sufficient in a great deal of cases to deal with these crimes. And to the extent that crimes are uh, significantly significant or harmful, we we still have the other laws on the books. You you assault someone in the library, we have a crime against assault. So, in reforming these library crimes, uh, I think uh, the 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 reform wouldn't be maybe as dramatic, perhaps as some people might think, perhaps as much as some people might like, uh, which I guess is an effect of kind of writing in this specific area.
0: So. In your last visit to the podcast, Mm -hmm. we talked about your article on state laws involving shooting fish. And in this visit to the podcast, we're talking about your research into state laws on library crimes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this kind of, project of legal scholarship and why you've chosen these kind of esoteric arguably quirky subject areas to study and describe and explain and what you think that they tell us about criminal law about society and maybe about the scholarly Project as well.
1: Sure. So, um, this is one of several articles. Shooting fish is another. I've written another article on distracted walking laws. You know, laws, uh, ordinances criminalizing walking across the street while looking at your phone. And now here I am writing about library crimes. I think that my motivation is is there's multiple motivations here. First, I just find this fascinating. I like getting into the weeds of these odd worlds of law that I had no idea existed. Uh, I had no idea there was such a consistent widespread set of rules about library theft or damaging of materials. Um, And once I get into that, you know, there's the initial excitement of discovering the world. And then there's the intrigue of parsing out the trends, the exceptions and sort of fleshing out that area. I, I just find that to be an inherently enjoyable process, but as a broader sort of agenda and a broader reason why i think this type of work is is helpful or um meaningful is i find it really helps uh connect with a wide audience uh legal scholars lawyers and non-lawyers alike uh focusing around kind of this interesting or sort of quirky hook of library crimes you know shooting fish distracted walking people might um I think relate to it a little bit better. Maybe not shooting fish. Maybe people don't typically go out and shoot fish with guns. Oh, so some places maybe they do. Um, but I mean, who amongst us hasn't walked across the street while looking at their phone? Who amongst us hasn't been going through your materials, like maybe after a move or going through that pile of books and realized, oh my gosh, there's a book I checked out from a library, uh, maybe a year ago, maybe more. Uh, and I find that sort of looking into these areas um, sort of creates a hook for those people to become interested. They can explore that area of law along with me, but then also I think it reveals sort of bigger lessons about the criminal system, about the legal system in general. Um, This uh, quirky perhaps, or niche paper of library crimes Stumbles upon issues of overcriminalization of, you know, criminalizing homelessness or un, or people, you know, being unhoused and um, just sort of criminalizing those people's existence. Uh, it gets into uh, significant First Amendment issues over, you know, banning books and current uh, panic that we have in a lot of states across the country over that issue. And so it serves as, I think, an introduction, maybe you know, a kind of a a gateway drug of hooking them with the interesting law and sort of exploring that, but then realizing how this relates into a system of bigger issues and interconnectedness. Um, That's sort of my process as I write and research these articles, fleshing out the world of the law and then figuring out how it relates to these bigger issues. And I think it's a good way of educating people on those bigger issues. Um, It leads them in uh, with a lot of examples of these bigger issues. And so People who read this article are educated in a way to think about these broader issues. You you approach the topic of over-criminalization. You've already been through a host of odd crimes, numerous crimes of all sorts of behaviors, and you have the resources to then think about and... Um, think through the, the the more abstract issue of over criminalization and how it may manifest itself in the crimes that you've just learned about in reading the article um i this is something i have been doing this is something i'm probably going to do more i have uh some you know my my ideas document i have a weird crimes perhaps uh Book uh, idea of you know chapter by chapter introducing the crimes and then going through the bigger issues they illustrate I think that 'd be useful for uh, people who aren 't familiar with those legal issues whether they 're lawyers whether they 're members of the broader public uh, there 's a reason I think why. This article, and my shooting fish article, tend to be the ones that I share most with you know my family members, with people I know outside of the legal community, and tend to get a lot of positive feedback or interest from these people who uh, haven't really thought through these issues before and who's who aren't lawyers or have that legal training.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that really struck me about both this article and the shooting fish article we talked about before was that by focusing on something that seems strange or trivial it helps it helps to illustrate the kind of social mindset that situates so much of everything else we do in specifically the criminal law but sort of the way we think about ordering and regulating society more generally that we take for granted when it comes to things that seem quote-unquote obvious, Mm -hmm. but that starts to feel weird when it comes to things we don't understand or that feel kind of silly or pointless. Because frankly, a lot of the library crimes you described seem really trivial, and it's hard to believe that they're ever actually prosecuted. And yet there they are on the books as a potential criminal sanction and to kind of look at them and say, why are we doing this in the first place? Like, look, what is the nature of the social order that can generate this kind of criminal sanction with this kind of penalty for something that just doesn't make any kind of sense?
1: Uh, it's an interesting reaction that you have because I've heard I've had a few reactions that are kind of the opposite of you know oh this guy is critiquing library crimes well you know I I respect my libraries I love my books and you come after my books I'm coming at I'm I'm throwing the book at you uh so I've seen that reaction as well but uh, I I I tend to sympathize with your initial reaction and I think again this is an instance of you know in a way, sometimes the absurdity or disconnect of the criminal legal system from what we think the criminal legal system is for. Uh, When you think about sort of, you know, social order, preventing harm, the purposes of punishment, things like that, I really think that laws like this uh, show us just how far we've strayed in many cases from the ideals that we think uh, motivate uh, criminal laws and that we think criminal laws uh, uphold. Uh, But when we actually get into the statutes when we actually look at what's out there it seems that we have gone uh, fairly far afield uh, on one level i think that you know to the extent that that's a an impetus for change i think that's a good thing i think i think i have a quote in there i think it's from uh, james foreman junior who points out that you know uh, reform in, in criminal law is a series of you know a bunch of small decisions made by a bunch of people in a bunch of places it adds up Uh, And if we can change certain things, even on a small level, I think it's a step, a small step towards making the criminal legal system maybe closer to what we want it to be or what we want it to exemplify. But I also think uh, the more I can get people's attention uh, or hook people's interest with these quirky crimes or crimes that they may not have um, been aware of, um, I can harness that curiosity and that intrigue towards another project as well, which is, Uh, the greater issue that you point out of laws and criminal laws straying from the purpose uh, that we normally uh, think of them as upholding. And maybe this is something we should do about it. You read my library crime article, you read my distracted walking article, you read about shooting fish. Gosh, it seems like there's a lot of these crimes. And maybe that in and of itself, looking at my work as a whole, is a broader issue that perhaps we should focus on uh, the criminal legal system as a whole and efforts to perhaps reform and eliminate or undo some of these strange crimes that have proliferated
0: over the decades. So Michael, in, in closing, uh, I'm always enjoying reading articles. What can I look forward to reading next?
1: Um well, t- right now is a is a bit of a strange time. So I I recently made the tra- transition from practice into academia. I had my first sort of real academic summer last summer. I was between moving from Idaho to here where I am now at St. Mary's. And so I wrote a bunch of things over the summer. So um, topics that you'll be able to see coming out for me next, uh, library crimes, Uh, was picked up, it's going to be published in the Drake Law Review. Um, In this same cycle, you'll see things from me on uh, state constitutional prohibitions of slavery and involuntary servitude. I get into some of those uh, constitutional provisions, recent amendments at the state level, and the implications they may have uh, for criminal sentencing at the state level. I think uh, some of them, at least what are now absolute prohibitions of slavery and involuntary servitude certainly may have implications for uh, requiring people convicted of crimes to to essentially work for free or for very little. Um, I've written about uh, chat GPT and plagiarism. I have an article coming, uh, an essay coming out in the University of New Hampshire Law Review uh, on that subject, which is going to be about how calls for integrating chat GPT into legal writing classes should um, also Take into account plagiarism in practice and um, uh, perhaps incorporate those lessons into the curriculum as well, drawing on work from you and uh, Megan Boyd, I believe, who have a great essay on that in the Washington Washington University Law Journal online, I believe. Um, And uh, as far as maybe more work in this theme, other areas of crime that I'm interested in exploring in a similar matter include, I'm thinking. Uh, Public urination or um, sort of statutes like that, I think, raise some pretty interesting questions in terms of how they, similar to the themes here, criminalize behavior by people who uh, are without housing or shelter, and also how some of them connect to um, sex offense statutes in some very dubious ways. Um, Other crimes include... uh, drive, uh, driving on a suspended license is another one that I'm interested in exploring, mainly for its fines and fees and some of these uh, very sort of strict regimes that a lot of states have, inspired by some of my past work in California where things there I think are kind of off the wall. But as far as in the abstract future work along these lines, I am thinking of building towards maybe a more collected project of a, a sort of weird crime by weird crime. There's a chapter for everyone. You know, Maybe you're not interested in shooting fish, but if you're interested in library crime, this book will sort of draw people in and sort of crime by crime, explain the crime, explain the landscape, but then explain how it relates to bigger issues, the constitutional law, environmental law, or criminal law and reform in general. I think that's sort of what a lot of this is building to. Um, and I find it to be a great way to balance both doing important work on those issues and sort of exploring and educating people on those bigger issues, and then selfishly, just being able to explore, sort of go out, pick up a rock and see what's under it. Sort of that spirit motivates a lot of what I do. And it's one reason why I'm, I, I write as much as I do, uh, that I just find it inherently fun to do. And so you'll likely see more of that fun scholarship from me in the very near future.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the show, Michael. It's a pleasure as always. And I hope we can host you again soon. Appreciate it, thank you so much for having me on. (laughs)
2: Oh <laughs> ho,